HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And a lot of people are taking vacations this summertime, going to beautiful places by the shore. Perhaps they're even going to Scotland. And if they're in Scotland, of course, if they wouldn't be celebrating Burns Night until January, but if they're in Scotland, perhaps they're eating lampreys, swans, seals, and peacocks or more likely haggis, neeps, and tatties, or perhaps bannocks on a girdle. It all sounds very strange, but very interesting. And today's guest with, is with me, joining me from Scotland by phone, and she is a food writer and a specialist in Scotland food history, Rachel McCormick. And Rachel, actually, Rachel, Rachel is also a specialist in the food and cooking of the Catalan region of Spain, but that's a whole other show. Having been weaned on fine whiskey, Rachel became something of a food and drink connoisseur. So after she traveled to Spain, she really got into the food there and became a, a um, specialist and decided to teach lessons and classes on the technique and cooking of Spain. But she never forgot her Scottish roots. Her food writing and broadcasting uh, can be found in many different journals and on many different uh, networks, such as the BBC Vegetarian Food Magazine, the Financial Times, The Guardian, and she's a regular panelist on BBC Radio 4's highly entertaining podcast, The Kitchen Cabinet. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks very much, Linda. It's lovely to be here. I, and I have to say that, that I really do enjoy listening to you on... Well, I, li- I enjoy listening to you, period. I love listening to you talk. But I love listening to you on The Kitchen Cabinet. I love that show. It is it is so much oh, thank fun. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm so pleased... I mean, we really enjoy doing it. It's a really fun program to do. Yeah, of course, I lose my breath just listening to you, but, <laughs> but it's great. Now, <laughs> I... You know, we have so many things we could talk about um, as far as Scottish food and and the history of food in Scotland, history of Scotland for that matter. But um, 
and you've turned me on to a few different things that have revolutionized um, the food. But give us a little idea about the, uh, you know, the lay of the land, if you will, the whole um, the environment and, and the natural resources that are so abundant there in Scotland. Well, I think the thing is with, with Scotland, it's a very small country. I mean, you can go right from the borders of Scotland way up to the north in six hours. So you, you get, it's not a big place, but it has a lot of coast. So you have an awful lot of fish and there's, a, there's you know, the Scottish seafood industry, even nowadays, is a massive big, it's a really important industry in Scotland. You've also got a lot of deer and a lot of game shooting from the, t- the traditions of of sort of land land deform. You've also got things like the, the deer have always been abundant and there's a lot of different game birds. You then also, one of the most important meat industries in Scotland has always been beef. If you look at, you know, your Aberdeen Angus uh, cow, in, which is very, very sought after in the States, that was a breed that was originally bred by us and developed by us in the 19th century. So beef is a really important thing in Scotland. The other thing that I think we do very well is dairy products. I find if I go anywhere else in Europe, the cream is just not nothing. It's nothing like the cream that we have in Scotland. Wow. Even in even in a normal shop, the cream is really, really nice. And you know, people make try and make fancy desserts, and then you just say, "Well, why don't we just have some cream and fruit?" And everybody enjoys that much more. Uh, it sounds wonderful to me, especially at this time of year, when in the summertime, when when the the fruit and the berries are so abundant. Um, and of course, everyone thinks about uh, scones and and shortbread, you know. But I I know there are so many more delicate desserts, which we'll we will get to. Um, one thing I think that people don't realize uh, is that Scotland was actually founded in the ninth century. I mean, there's a lot of history going on there. And go, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yes. I mean, I think the thing is with, with Scotland is that I think it's the same with all of Europe. I think, you know, we, for example, if you look at Scotland, we start talking about the union between Scotland and, and England and how it affected our culture and how it affected our culinary culture. And that was in 1707. But that for us is yesterday. Yeah, yeah. I- you know, that, that for us does not seem that long ago. Whereas imagine for an American, that's just ancient, ancient history. That's right, and I think it's—I think it's quite a different. But I think it's quite a different way of looking at the world. I mean, I, the people that I know that look at the world with the longest view ever I've ever seen are Indians. You know, you talk to an Indian, and they will tell you something that happened seven hundred years ago, like it was yesterday. Right, right. Well, tell me about um, what we we will get to haggis because I I promise people we will talk about haggis. <laughs> I mean that's I think when you when you mention something when you mention Scottish food to people they think oh haggis or you know oat cakes but um, but oats do I'm, I wanted to mention oats in particular because oats have always played an important role in Scottish cuisine and. Uh, the reason for that, obviously, you can explain that to us. I think it's it's mostly the climate, and mm-hmm. it, if you look at, for example, in Spain, when you get to Castile, when you get to the flat bit of Spain, the Meseta, they grow wheat because it it wheat really really suits that the climate of the Meseta. Oats suited us. If you look, you know, I think farmers are never stupid. They may not necessarily ever have been literate, and they may not have been highly educated, but they weren't daft. 
they, you grow things that are easy to grow that will give you a crop. So the two the two main cereals that were grown in most of Scotland were oats and barley. And there were jokes made by English people in the 18th century that coming up to Scotland, there was a, a very famous trip by a man called Dr. Johnson. And he said that oats were a grain which in England is given to horses, but in Scotland supports the people. <laughs> so he couldn't he couldn't get over how much that we we eat from oats. But when you look at it, the thing is, it made for a very healthy people. That the the oats and the barley, and then a tiny bit of meat for, for peasants, made for a very very healthy diet. When in the 18th century. I don't know if you've ever seen those old films where notoriously men will go out to a tavern and get drunk and wake up and discover they're on a boat or that they've been conscripted into the army, um, which was quite common in the 18th century. And a lot of, of the Navy and the, and the army kind of seekers of looking for men to just fulfil the basic role of just being on ships or being part of the army, they would go to Scotland a lot because the people were so healthy. The men were seen as very tall and slim but very strong. And that was really because of the oats and the barley. I mean, the kind of things, if you look if you look at the recipes, we made everything with oats. We made drinks with oats. There's a drink with whiskey, which is oats and water, and then you, you steep them for a long time and then you add whiskey to them called Athel Bros. There's the porridge that people would eat in the morning. A lot of the time, we, we make porridge, traditionally we make porridge with, with water and sugar. It's a big dividing line between Scottish people and English people. The English people make porridge with milk. Now, I think you make sort of porridge and Quaker oats with milk in the States, don't you? Uh, well, I think it's it's probably evenly split. I think milk is always added afterwards, but I think the porridge is initially made with water. Because we, we make it with water and salt, and then the tradition is that it, it's hot with water and salt, and you have a, a bowl of cold cream beside it. So mm-hmm. you have a hot piece of... a hot some hot porridge on, on one side of your spoon and some cold cream on another, which actually does make it very nice. But the tradition also with, with farming communities is that once the porridge has been done in the morning, you, you had a dresser in the kitchen and you'd put the porridge in a drawer and it was called the porridge drawer until it was cold. And then you'd slice it for people to take out to work in the way in a similar way to the way polenta was made in Italy. Now, no one does that anymore. It's a threat, and it uh, is actually quite vile. Huh. But I think it, it, it was a very sensible way of, of feeding people calories, if you think about it, that a labourer, a farm labourer in the 18th and, 18th and 19th century needed about 6,000 calories a day. So they needed a, to keep going. They needed a lot of, of food and a lot of energetic food. And oats is, is very good for that. It's one of the reasons why... People now eat it for health, and it's because it's low GI, because it's slow releasing. If you're working in a field all day, oats can keep you going for quite a long time. Yeah, you know, in fact, we I, we still say it to our kids that it's a stick to your rib breakfast and eat your eat your oatmeal because it will it will give you energy all day long. Right now, you know, it's funny you say that um, oats something that the oats and the porridge have fallen away. Uh, Kale has swept this country like no other green in history. And you have a little something to say about kale. Well, this is the thing I find fascinating. We did a radio program in Glasgow last year. We did a kitchen cabinet. And and the producer is, is from London. And she kept telling me about the long tradition of kale in Scotland. And I said to her, yes, as animal feed, nobody eats it unless they have to. And one of the things that, that happened was 
everybody in, in, in more rural times would have a kitchen garden, so you'd make your soup from what was in the garden. And because of the climate being so so not being so hard, the, the easiest thing to grow was kale. So a lot of the time, gardens were called kale yards, so that you, you put the kale in the soup. But nobody eats it anymore because you've got a choice of vegetables. We don't have to eat it. And <laughs> The problem they have in Scotland is they're trying to import this American idea of isn't kale healthy? And everybody's standing there going, no, because we don't actually have to eat this anymore. We can eat the meat from from the animals that are eating the kale. We don't want to eat this. And the programme that we did, they were desperately trying to find somebody in the audience that that really liked kale. And this very old lady, maybe in her mid-80s, of 85, 86, put her hand up and said that she grew up with a kale yard and that was her mother used to do nothing but cook soups and make soups with kale. And so we said to her, well, do you eat it now? And she said, no, I hate it. And she said, I had to eat it my entire childhood. I never want to eat kale again as long as I live. So when, <laughs> That's a good story. So when we see all, all these Californian, all, sort of this Californian idea of the kale smoothies and everything being really healthy, we're kind of standing there going, but it's vile. I mean, you know, it might be healthy, but you, you're so miserable eating it that what's the point in being alive and eating all that kale? Well, we'll have to send you a few good recipes for some modern dishes <laughs> of kale and, and change your thinking back again. You know, uh, of course, one realizes that, that there are there must be rich resources um, in Scotland. I mean, obviously, all the wealthy lords have their country estates there. And they go, you know, they go north for the hunt. Um, and yet there is a difference in, well, you mentioned the deer, a lot of deer, um, and uh, and the beef and that came later on. Uh, but pig, now pig, pork is something that you don't, uh, one would assume you'd have more pork in your diet, but you don't have, do you? No, we don't, we don't have a big tradition. I mean, I... I spend a lot of time down in London and I've been doing so for about the past seven years and there aren't very many differences, fundamental differences in the food of, in, in England as to the food in Scotland. But the thing I have noticed, everybody down here, down in London, is obsessed with pig and every Scottish people don't really bother about it. I think we just didn't have the same kind of climate for pigs. Although there are various rumours that when the Romans arrived in Scotland, that they, the barbarians, you know, the Romans called everybody that wasn't a Roman a barbarian, right. who were there, decided that, thought that eating pigs was disgusting and, and that pigs were somehow associated with, with evil and the devil. Now, there are rumours about that. No historian has ever managed to find to find out whether that's true or not. But there are a lot of good stories that may or may not be true. But I like a good story. And if it's true, sometimes it's relevant. But there's this, so there's this idea that the pigs were disgusting. The only place in Ayrshire, the, the place where the poet Robert Burns is from, that's a place that had quite a lot of pigs and they make bacon. But apart from that, there really isn't a lot of a lot of pigs and sort of pork meat in, in in traditional Scottish culture. My grandfather was a butcher in the immediate post-war period up until about the 80s in the east end of Glasgow. And as you'll, as you'll know, in Britain, a big thing for us are sausages, sort of link sausages for breakfast or for rolls, for lunch. And in England, you can only really get pork sausages and my grandfather always made beef sausages and pork sausages, and the beef sausages were seen as more expensive 
you'd only buy the pork sausages if you didn't have money to buy the beef ones. Mm. Whereas down here, when I see beef sausages, it's a new in, in in London. It's sort of a new thing. It's like a sort of world cuisine. It's more like a merguez style beef sausage. Whereas for me, a beef sausage is just a normal thing. It's it's the thing that you would get because you had enough money to buy one. Right. Well, speaking of sausage being in casings, and then you mentioned uh, the poet Robert Burns. Well, I guess it's a, it's a good time to mention haggis. Uh, that some say a medieval invention or but even maybe further back than that but describe to us exactly what is haggis well haggis is really if you look at you don't really have in the u.s a lot of black puddings i think maybe they do in mexico but there's a there is a big european tradition of when you slaughter an animal you have the blood and you make a black pudding and you use, sometimes you'll use some of the pluck, sometimes you'll use some of the offal, so you might use some liver in the sausage. So there's a, a Sardinian sausage, and I cannot remember the name, but it, it uses blood and um, pig's liver, and they make, they make a sausage. So haggis is essentially very similar to that European tradition, but instead of having blood, it generally has um, lungs and liver and heart, and it's all chopped up. And because of the fact that we all eat oats, the the oats are are the filling agent. Whereas, in I think in Spain, a lot of the black black sausages they use rice as a filling, and in other countries they'll use bread. We use so it's basically um, the lungs and the liver and the heart all chopped up with with oats, and the big flavouring is a very nineteenth century flavouring, and it's pepper. And, and and then this is all and but when then the thing I think that that actually tends to uh, cause some people to recoil is that it's all then stuffed into a sheep's stomach. Well, it's right? stuffed, traditionally, it should be stuffed into sheep's stomach. It's generally not anymore. It's generally stuffed into these um, sort of um, now these kind of protein casings that everybody that are made for sausages and that are made for for puddings. Mm-hmm. So the tradition was that you would stuff it into a sheep's stomach and then you boil it for a long time. But the thing to also remember is that these kind of puddings and these these were made all over Britain. These boiled puddings, not necessarily like haggis, but if you look at a lot of the sweet things all over England and Scotland and Wales, would you'd have these puddings that were wrapped in cloths and boiled, and um, that could be sweet, or you'd get suet puddings where you'd have a stuffing of of some kind of meat and then an encasing with them um, suet and um, breadcrumbs, and then you would wrap them up in and boil and boil them, or you'd have dough, you'd have or you'd have the meat wrapped in dough. So haggis is essentially something similar to that. It's not actually a strange. It comes in with a very long tradition in, in the whole of Britain of kind of wrapping things up and boiling them. And I can't remember she's actually very nice. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, I mean, I love awful. A lot of people are turned off by awful, but but I happen to like it. And um, it's, and it is not, you know, I think it's the idea that's off-putting to many people, but the taste is not. I think the problem is that we're too, I think the problem is that we have forgotten that we have, we've all forgotten we're all this, these post-industrial people and I am not I love my industrial food I love that I can get things really easily but I do think we have lost that remembrance that the animals were alive and have different bits you know so if you go if you go to the supermarket and you see 12 chicken legs that's six chickens what happened to the rest of the chicken yeah right <laughs> and I think 
And I think it's the same. It's the same if you if you're having steaks all the time. You know, this animal was more than just steaks. You have to work. What else you can do with that animal? It can't just be steaks. Right. And so, I, I mean, I I never really like haggis, and I don't I don't I think that that we just don't have because I've gotten the awful existence to eat in there. I think that's the problem. Right. Now, you, um, you mentioned um, uh, industrialization, and something you turned me on to the um, television series uh, Outlanders, and, uh, and that having taken place after a particular period, and you were talking to me um, earlier about the highlands and the lowlands and then the highland clearances. Tell us a little bit about what that was, and and then the, out, the Outlanders takes place around that period of time. Tell us what that the clearance was, and how that affected um, Scottish cuisine. Well, let's see very, very quickly because people are still arguing about what happened nowadays. Um, what actually happened was was if you look at, at the program Out, Outlander, that is about the time that was a challenge to the throne in England and a lot of Highlanders in Scotland got behind the challenger to the throne of the Stuarts and they ended up going down to London um, in, to try and have, have a battle but it never really happened and then they ended up they ended up back in Scotland and they were defeated in a really big battle called Culloden and what happened was, was that the English throne or the British throne because it was after the Union decided that they'd never be invaded again on their own land so they ordered all, all the lords because the way the Highlands worked, the Highlands was so it wasn't it wasn't citified. It was very very feudal. There's a lot of ways that it actually had probably more Chilean common with West Africa of the 18th century than it did with Edinburgh, or Glasgow, or London. And so what they made they made the chiefs they made the chiefs send their children to be educated in London, and they wouldn't let them live there, which then meant these chiefs realised that they had a lot of land but they didn't have any money and to function in London in the 18th century in the late 18th century you needed money so they so they realised that they needed to make money from the land somehow so what they did was they pushed the people off the land and put in sheep cause, because again it was the beginning of industrialisation and there were a lot of factories in the, coming up especially in the north of England who were, were spinning cloth so they put in sheep so that they could make more money from that. So then you have, this is when you have a lot of people in Canada, nowadays in Canada, are descendants from people who were cleared off the land. And there's quite a lot of people from South Carolina whose ancestors would have been indentured labour, so they would have been sent on, on ships to go and work for five years for free, in a lot of time on plantations in South Carolina. And the effect that that had was one of the things was people were pushed off the land so they, they couldn't grow things on their own land anymore and they couldn't have a cow. So one of the things that happened was they had a lot more fish and, and a lot of the fish had to be salted and kept. There was also a lot of famine because the, these places weren't very fertile. Or any any land that was quite fertile was kept for sheep. And then you also have, have the issue of this is also when industrialisation is happening in, in, in Scotland and in the whole of, of Britain. So a lot of them are also pushed to the cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh and Dundee. So instead of being in the countryside with the certain rhythms that countryside have, they get pushed into these industrial jobs and living in very, very cramped, tiny houses with no outside life. So the diet really gets an awful lot worse once industrialisation happens because there's no way to cook 
everybody's got to work. You know, there's women working, the children are often working from the age of six years old in mines, in factories, or, or in working on docks. And so the food is very often just food that can be bought in the street and not, often not made at home because there's no one to make it. And the quality of it just goes right down and the health of people really deteriorates. Hmm. Well, and I and I see that in some of the names and some of the portability of the foods that have um, persisted. And I want to talk a bit about some of those foods when we come back right after a short break. So stay with us. Hello out there. It's Steve Jenkins. I'm with Fairway Markets. White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro. Well, these aren't names you're likely to hear at a fairway butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming, you would have. And at Heritage Foods USA, you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's Heritage Turkey, Japanese Steaks, Berkshire Pork, or Navajo Churro Lamb Chops is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more information. We are back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Rachel McCormick um, about the history of Scottish food. And, Rachel, you were talking about the, how poor the diet became after the industrialization and the, and the clearances of the land for, um, uh, for, well, not agriculture so much as, as the raising of sheep. And around the time, I guess just before the clearances, that's when uh, potatoes were introduced from the New World, and a lot of potatoes then were in, are, um, seem to be involved in a lot of the dishes, the heartier dishes that have remained um, a, a, a staple in the Scottish diet, but correct me if I'm wrong. And I just love saying the names of the dishes, so maybe you can tell us what these dishes are. I just think the names are terrific. Well, the, uh, best, the best name really is Rumbledy Thumps. Rumbledy Thumps, thank you. That was my first one. <laughs> that is, that's just the best name. Disappointingly, it's just mashed potatoes and cabbage. Um, I think in Ireland it's called Kilcannon, right. but then for Kilcannon, for, for the Irish, is just um, mashed potatoes with some spring onions or sometimes spinach or nettles or any vegetable that they can get. For us, it's generally just um, potatoes, butter, and cabbage. But Rumble Thumps is such a good name. It really is. So it's, there's, a, there's a point where it doesn't really matter what it is. It's <laughs> such a brilliant name. Right. What about Cullen Skink? Well, Cullen, well, Cullen skink is, is one of our sort of is smoked dishes. There's a very big tradition of smoked fish in, in Scotland. Again, it, it's how do you preserve when you don't have deep deep freezers and um, 
fridges, you, you have to look a wee serving and it's all in, in, in the north of Europe, it's generally salting and, and smoking. So we, we have kind of two types of, of smoking fish. There's the old traditional way of smoking fish called the Lewis smoke, which is quite heavy smoke. So smoke, we, And we still smoke a lot of haddock that way. So Cullen skink is a smoked haddock soup. So it's just smoked haddock and potatoes and then cream. And quite often you put in, sometimes to thicken it, they'll put in a bit of rice flour, which seems to be a very Victorian thing to add to soup. But Cullen skink, again, smoked fish and potatoes and cream is just such a beautiful combination and it makes it for a really good soup. Well, to me, it just sounds like a smoked version of brandad. I mean, it's, it sounds delicious. <laughs> it is, but it's much thinner. It's an actual soup. You know, whereas brandad is, oh. is more of a dish that you eat with a fork. Uh-huh. Um, Cullen skink is most definitely a soup. Okay. We, we have a thing. It's one of the other few things I've noticed between kind of Scottish and English food is that Scottish people eat a lot more soups than English people do. I think there was a thing in England where maybe in the 20s or 30s where soup was seen as a very poor, a poor thing for poor people that you had in a soup kitchen. Whereas in Scotland, soups and broths were still things that were seen as as good things to eat. So we still have a long tradition of, of soups and broths. Well, I mentioned at the top of the show haggis with neeps and teddies. Um, mm-hmm. You have to let us, you have to let our listeners know what neeps and teddies are for those who aren't familiar. Neeps are just turnips, but um, our turnips are generally the big round yellow ones. I, do you often in the states? Do you, do you have the small white turnips, or are your turnips big, big yellow? Both. We have both. One. The big yellow ones we call rutabagas, and then we have the. Uh, you call the them what? Rutabaga. Rutabaga. Ah, because that's the ones that we would also use at Halloween. We didn't. We use pumpkins now because we've imported the tradition from America. So we exported the tradition of carving out carving out turnips, yeah. and then you made them in, in pumpkins because huh, they're bigger and easier to carve. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, there is. We. You know. We. I would be remiss if we did not talk about the importance of whiskey in in Scotland yeah. and and in the diet as well. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about well, do you that. You know. It's. I've, it's our third biggest industry uh, in Scotland. Me? After, after it's the third biggest industry in Scotland. After oil and after technology, it is the third biggest employer and makes more money than any other industry apart from oil and technology in Scotland. It's a massively important part of the Scottish economy and the Scottish culture. What is interesting with whisky and food is that there's not a tradition of cooking with whisky. And I think that's because if you look at, if you go to Normandy in France or you go to bits of Spain, in Spain they'll cook a lot with brandy and in Normandy in France they'll cook a lot with Calvados, which is their apple brandy. Mm-hmm. We don't have a tradition of that because of the taxes that were put on whiskey in the 18th century. So it became, it became too expensive to make whiskey as a cottage industry legally. So there are loads and loads of stories of people making whiskey illegally and trying to get it across the country past past the eyes of the taxman. And the excise man's job is constantly to find out how much you're if you're making whiskey illegally and, and to try and stop it. So we have we have a really we don't have a tradition of cooking with whiskey. We have a, obviously a very long tradition of of drinking with whiskey, and our whiskeys are always called drams. And you'd I would say. In Scotland, I've seen about the, the past 30 years that malt whiskey is the whiskey that people think is the best whiskey to drink. 
blended whisky is the thing that makes Scotland the most money because blended whisky is exported and the national drink of India is Johnny Walker whisky. It's what they drink more than anything else. Yeah. But for Scottish people, what they'll drink is malt whisky from, from different regions of, of, of Scotland. So your Speyside whisky would be quite a soft whisky, whereas there's an island off the West Coast called Isla, and the Isla whiskies are very, very smoky. So your your, your taste sort of, of Scottish whiskies, malt whiskies, can go from an almost brandy softness to something that you just feel like you're drinking smoke and fire and flame and sort of earth all at the same time. Oh, very peaty, I imagine, right? Yes. Very, yes. Uh, very. The, the ones from Isla are, are the really peaty ones. It was funny, I was listening um, a few months ago to a Mexican podcast about whiskey, and the person had to spend 20 minutes trying to explain to Mexicans what peat was, because obviously peat doesn't exist in Mexico. And he just spent so long trying to explain it, and I just thought, why don't you just say fire and things people burn? And that, that'll be fine. They'll understand that. <laughs> So I generally now try and avoid to say the word PT outside of Scotland because I think it's just going to take so long to explain what PT is. Uh, well, I think a lot of us are, are we're, we're well versed enough in in our whiskies that we we get it. So you know, yeah, yes. I'm sure it's, it's not that. The thing I really like about whiskey is that you never stop learning. There's always so much yeah. to learn. Every time you think you know it all, something new happens. That's right. And there's a new. There's a new distillery being built in a very small island called Rassi, and it's very funny because the way they're advertising themselves is that they are the first legal distillery to be built on Rassi, which makes me want to go and ask everybody else how they've been drinking their whiskey for the past 100 years, Hmm. if there's the first legal distillery being built there at the moment. <laughs> where Or where they've been buying it, if not how they've been drinking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, back to the the fish, and of course, you know, mm-hmm. Scott, the smoked Scottish um, salmon is is renowned uh, here as well. But you mentioned that um, that uh, mackerel. There is an aversion to mackerel. Mackerel is sort of having a renaissance here in this country as a you know a good healthy oily fish. But you know, the Scottish, the Scots it, don't it, like it. It, huh? it is. It's now. It is. It is now. But traditionally. It's a really strange thing in Scotland. It was seen as a scavenger scavenger fish, so nobody would want to eat it. So traditionally, even when when the even from about the twenties, when the export industry for fish in Scotland became a big thing, most of the mackerel was exported, particularly to to Russia and to Eastern Eastern Europe. But um, people didn't want to eat mackerel in, in Scotland at all. For some reason, they thought it was scaven- a scavenger fish. They'd eat haddock and ling and, and cod and all the sort of cod family, no problem at all. But mackerel was something that they didn't like. It is becoming a thing that we, that it, it, Scotland, um, the Scottish fisheries um, uh, sections of the government are trying to promote it more. But generally speaking, the interesting thing that I think about and the sad thing for in the Scottish fishing industry is the amount that gets exported in that, you know, you can go to um, a really nice port um, village and expect to find a lot of seafood restaurants and small boats and able to buy fish. And the fish just lands on, in the port and just gets put in a lorry and just gets sent up to Europe, to, to the continent, because Scottish people don't particularly buy it. Hmm. Oh, that's a shame. That's uh, And yet it is, there's I mean, such it an is, abundance. It is right? changing. There are, there, are, there are becoming more campaigns to try and get people to eat it. Um, but it's just, it, it's something, again, it's that, that sort of, I think, you know, it's that 
postmodern problem of sort of industrialisation and then people not having a proper connection to, to to their own local food and then trying to reclaim that. But how do you reclaim it on a massive scale? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know the the um, you had mentioned that there are the chroniclers. We talked about you know how do we know about mm-hmm. how do we know about Scottish food? What do we know about some of the how things have changed in the diet? And you mentioned an interesting point that um, that Sir Walter Scott's wife um, was a famous chronicler of Scottish food. It was so, his. It was his publisher's wife. Oh, his publisher's wife. Okay. Yeah. His publisher's wife, bizarrely. Sir Walter Scott wrote various books about a fictional club called the Cleekham Club and the, in an inn in Perthshire, or Peebleshire. And there was supposedly the cook of the Cleekham, Cleekham Club was a woman called Meg Dodds. And so Isabel Johnson, who was Sir Walter Scott's publisher's wife, wrote one of the first Scottish cookbooks about and pretended to be Meg Dodds. So it was essentially Meg Dodds, Dodds cookbooks. It was a lot of the food that appeared in Sir Walter Scott's, um, Sir Walter Scott's novels ended up in, in this recipe book. And it's one of those things where Sir Walter Scott was so responsible for creating so much of the sort of imagery of Scotland and the, the lochs and the, the lakes. And, the, and, and you think, well, even he's now even created the food. He's just done everything. But one of the the best, if, you, if if any of your listeners are really interested in, in, in looking at historical Scottish foods, one of the best books to read is um, by a woman called F. Marion McNeil. And she wrote a book in 1929 called The Scots Kitchen. And her book was looking at traditions, traditional Scottish food that was disappearing and stuff stuff that was also had been written down in sort of the, the 18th and the early 19th century. And and also things that were disappearing, but she's such a wonderful writer that you, you read it and you really feel that you understand Scotland and you understand the food, and you can see where things came from. She was a folklorist, and in the, in the 30s, I think because of her reaction to the First World War, a lot of folklore and, and, and the whole of Britain was a, a very popular thing to, to become interested in and look at and what traditions were dying and what traditions you could you still find in rural areas. And so her book, The Scots Kitchen, is, is a wonderful, wonderful book about Scotland. But nowadays, I think um, there's a couple of sort of celebrity chefs. Called, one's called Nick Nair and another one's called Tom Kitchen. But their books are very much how you cook in restaurants. If you really want to so that how you cook traditionally in houses and what people actually do, the person the person whose books you really buy is um, a lady called Catherine Brown. She's spent about the past 25, 30 years investigating Scottish food. She knows more than anybody else. She's a member of the Historical Society. And again, because it's such a small country, there are things that you can find out that are much easier to find to find out than they would be in a big country about how things vary from one place to another because you can go there in two hours. And well, she, you she spent a lot of time working working on that. Right. You thank you for those resources because I that's that's probably what I get asked more than anything um, after the show are suggestions of resource books to learn more about a topic. And you have certainly given us a wonderful introduction to the history of Scottish food. And I thank you so much for joining us. And it's it's I can't wait to do a show now on Catalan cooking with you. <laughs> As I say, oh, thank I, you so much for having me, Linda. It is it's just wonderful history and um, so much that we need to learn about 
uh, near neighbors. And I thank you for joining me, and thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. I've been your host, Linda Palaccio. And I would like to thank my listeners, you the listeners, for tuning in. Um, this Shows like this are really supported by those of you who tune in each week. And, of course, the show wouldn't be possible without our excellent executive producer and today's engineer, Jack Inslee. And I would like to let you know that today's break music was provided by California Honey Drops. And my show's song theme is by Bohemia. And next up, we do have a little teaser clip for you to tell you a little bit about other things that are on the network. And Kathy Irway from the show Eat Your Words has a nice little intersection of food and family with Chef Danny Boyan. Again, thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. You know, we weren't the most well-off family growing up, so we, we always ate at home. We didn't go out to restaurants that often. Acclaimed Chef Danny Bowian of Mission Chinese has fond memories of food and family. And, and then my mom cooked, you know, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and yeah. I was just so fascinated. I'd always stand in the kitchen and cook with my mom, which is... Um, it was amazing. You know, it was like really cool. Uh, it was a good time that we always spend that time together. And I think that's what really inspired me to to want to cook. And, and it was cool because for that, you know, hour and a half that we ate or hour that we ate every night, you know, the whole family was there. And my dad was there and he worked. So I got to see him and talk to him. So it was cool. I thought I always thought that like cooking and bringing people together, uh, being able to hang out with your friends or your family is, is really important. I think that was one of the major reasons that I wanted to cook. I didn't know that once I started cooking, I would never see my family or friends because I'd be cooking all the time. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it's uh, you see them when they come to the restaurant. You're fostering friendship and family for other people, right, I guess. Right, right, right. Good times. Yeah. This was an excerpt of episode 100 of Eat Your Words, hosted by Kathy Irway. All episodes available on HeritageRadioNetwork.org and iTunes. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.